There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In Britain, Conservative Party members are on the cusp of electing a new leader and thus a new prime minister. Both candidates are promising a change away from managerial consensus. Boris Johnson has courted the right with a hardline stance on Brexit and he stands against so-called political correctness. Jeremy Hunt, his more centrist challenger, has also had to amp up his rhetoric to appeal to a more demanding grassroots. A related trend has been America's recent journey, Republicans shifting to the right in recent years, even before the election of Donald Trump. And President Trump has certainly accelerated that, embracing a culture war centred on issues from anti-globalisation to immigration and questioning abortion rights. So are we seeing the permanent reorientation of a conservatism that chooses populism over prudence? And will the next generation of conservative leaders be made somewhat in the image of Donald Trump? This week, we're asking, is conservatism in crisis? To answer the question, we have two award-winning journalists and authors who've thought a lot about this. George Will is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist. He's author of several books. His latest is called The Conservative Sensibility. And Adrian Wooldridge is our political editor at The Economist and Badgett columnist, author of The Right Nation, a study of conservatism in America. I started by asking, what is conservatism? It's two different things on two sides of the Atlantic. European conservatism arises from blood and soil, throne and altar, imperatives to defend certain hierarchies and established orders. American conservatism is actually to reconcile Americans to the constant tumult and change of a market open society. The bridge between the two would be Edmund Burke, whose celebration of or the organic nature of British society has an echo in American celebration of the spontaneous order of a market society. But basically, in the phrase American conservatism, the adjective American does a lot of work because it distinguishes a conservatism that traces back to Locke and not to Burke. Right. Names of philosophers we're going to dive into in just a moment. So we'll hold them in reserve, our big hitters. Adrian, is your definition of conservatism akin to George's? Absolutely. I would say that the big difference between American conservatism and British conservatism is that American conservatism is born in modernity. It's always been a product of modernity. British conservatism is an adaption to modernity. It's a way in which an aristocratic, hierarchical society adapts itself to the tumult and change of the modern order. So there's always a sense of nostalgia of looking back or measuring the world against something that was, was rather different from that, whereas in America that isn't the case. I'd also say that there is something about conservatism which is sort of more profound than just an adaption to modernity, and that is that I think conservatism 
uh, as a doctrine is essentially about realism, about realism about human nature, that human nature is flawed, that human nature needs to be guided by certain things, by institutions, by families, and that both progressivism and populism are about rather romantic conceptions of human nature. Conservatism is the realism that anchors you to fact. And George, who would you cite as founding fathers of the idea, if you like, and I know there's a big panoply to choose from, but which philosophers sum up to you something that we need to understand to understand conservatism? I think it would be James Madison, the father of the American Constitution. Madison has taken to heart, in a sense, what Immanuel Kant said when he said that from the crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight shall ever be made. Coming to terms with what is given, human nature is fixed and given, is the basic challenge of conservatism. Human beings are interested, self-interested creatures, and that impulse must be harnessed for the public good, but should not be sentimentalized. And that uh, he said of the American Constitution, you see throughout our system the process of supplying by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives. Conservatives understand the defects uh, that cannot be counted upon to be cured by good motives. Adrian, is this a view of conservatism that is sired by the revolution and the founding of the modern American state? And it therefore doesn't quite resonate across the Atlantic. Or are you basically talking about the same things in different words? In many ways, we're talking about the same things in different words. But I think British conservatism is much more forged by the French Revolution um, rather than the American Revolution. And the, American, the reaction to it. And, and the reaction to it. It's, it's, it's about Burke's reaction to pain. Um, to Thomas Paine, not Paine itself, and the trauma of, of, of the, and the bloodiness of the, the French Revolution. Well, I, I agree with that. There's a famous passage in Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France where he talks about the great British cow under the shade of a tree, placidly chewing its cud while grasshoppers in the meadow make all the noise. And his point is that the, there are always those making noise, but they are insects compared to the enormous, stolid British public. That's how Burke saw things and how Burke wanted things. The American Revolution, of course, was quite unlike the French Revolution. We hear a lot about the Americans' belief in exceptionalism, which I can describe succinctly, I think. Americans were born free in the sense that they did not have a feudal past, hence they did not have an established church or an entrenched aristocracy. The American Revolution was exceptional because it did not set out to deliver happiness, but to set people free to pursue happiness as they might define it. They have an exceptional constitution in that it doesn't say what the government must do for them, but what the government may not do to them. And all of this uh, breeds a, a society of individualism that is uniquely uh, impervious to the, the siren song of, of modern historicism, that we are all the playthings of vast impersonal forces and human agency is, a, is of minor significance. Adrian, you wanted to come in Yes, there. Yes, George, why do you call your book, which I very much enjoyed, I must say, why do you call your book The Conservative Sensibility rather than The Conservative Mind? Well, A, the title was taken by, by Russell Kirk a long time ago, The Conservative right. Mind. But beyond that, by sensibility, I mean more than an attitude but less than an agenda. My concern is less with telling people what to think 
but more how to think, how someone with a conservative sensibility welcomes the flux of events, the sense of things are not under control, and that's a good thing. A wise woman in Washington once said, you can distill the lesson of the Bible into one sentence. God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. The conservative sensibility says that's excellent. We, we want events to be out of control. We're, we're sort of like Lucretius. We, we like the sense of whirl and uncertainty in an unsupervised world. I pick up a book called The Conservative Sensibility, and I immediately think about America and Donald Trump. Is this a comment on Donald Trump's rather unconservative sensibility? I think so. You might notice that in about 560-some pages of text, the name Donald Trump does not appear. People say, gee, why is that? And I said, well, the, the name of Audrey Hepburn doesn't appear either, or Humphrey Bogart. This is, this is about ideas, and he doesn't deal in ideas. This is not a Washington book about the monomania that people in Washington experience as he has come to occupy an already grotesquely swollen office of the presidency. Progressives in America for a century have wanted to concentrate more and more power in Washington, more and more Washington power in the presidency, and more and more presidential power spun off into the executive agencies of the administrative state. But I, now, can, I, can I just uh, come in there? Because I, sure. I, feel you, I think you've earned yourself a challenge there. It's not a quiz, but uh, I, I think I have a challenge point for you, which is you said the conservatives don't believe, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you now, hope you don't mind, you don't believe too much in control. They like things to be freewheeling and a bit out of control from the Garden of Eden onwards. Then along comes Donald Trump and causes some problems to an established American view and an intellectual view of what conservatism is, at which point you say, well, he's got nothing to do with conservatism. Are you sure that you're just not wanting to own something which is awkward, is disruptive and doesn't fit your model? Well, during his campaign, he made a point of saying it's called the Republican Party, not the Conservative Party. He never <laughs> pretended to be a conservative. He never pretended to uh, have immersed himself in some of the canonical texts of the American conservative movement, which since the Second World War has actually been remarkably bookish. I'll tell you a story that uh, resonates over here. Margaret Thatcher, after she became leader of the conservative uh, parliamentary party, but before she became prime minister, was at a meeting of her members, and one of them was up nattering on about the beauties of centrism and all the rest. She supposedly took from her famous and capacious handbag a copy of Friedrich Hayek's enormous volume, The Constitution of Liberty, slammed it down on the desk and said, this is what we believe. No one thinks that Donald Trump could cite a text, a book, or even a manifesto as to what he believes. Other than that, he ought to be president. And that, as he said in the Cleveland Convention, only I can fix things. Well, let me ask uh, Adrian, as author of The, the Right Nation, do, do you think Donald Trump comes out of a conservatism that you can define? And he, whether he does or he doesn't, or he's got a book in his handbag or whatever he carries with him, why do so many conservatives in America support him? Well, I think uh, conservatism is every now and again a disruptive movement. Um, it was disruptive with Reagan to some extent. It was certainly disruptive with Mrs. Thatcher to a certain extent. And I think there's a feeling amongst conservatives at the moment that the culture is out of their control, that the university system is out of control, that they're voiceless people, and that they need to have some sort of expression of rage against a, a, a culture that's 
that's drifting ever more towards progressivism and liberalism. There's a famous sort of essay, um, I think, in the 2016 campaign called the, the sort of the Flight 93 option, saying that things were so desperate that conservatives had to sort of rush the plane. And that although Trump isn't a conservative, he's an instrument of conservatism in some way, some desperate way. You agree, George, or not? Well, I think there is a, a strand of conservatism that I would call crybaby conservatism that says picking up on something uh, progressives have specialized in for years, that is victimology. They're saying, no, no, we conservatives are victims, victims of Hollywood, of academia, of the media, et cetera, et cetera, of coastal elites condescending to us and all the rest. So conservatism has been infected by a kind of curdled resentment of a lot of modern life. And, and these people have found a home in the Republican Party as it, it was made welcoming to them by Donald Trump, who says he too is a victim. Everyone's mm -hmm. being mean to Donald Trump, you may have noticed. He begins every day with a burst of tweets about how people are picking on him. This is not the confident, more or less serene conservatism that says, look, what we're trying to conserve is the American founding, the sense of individualism, the archi constitutional architecture of the separation of powers and all the rest. It's entirely with him personal. It's not just um, Trump, though, although he's a, a symbol of this. The conservative movement as a movement has become increasingly angry, increasingly focused on resentments, a sense that it's been cut out of um, the, 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 the bigger national dialogue. Uh, and most young conservatives, I, I think, don't seem to be uh, serene, I think, in their sensibilities. They're, they're angry in their sensibilities. Why is this? Well, it's partly the, the hysteria around the Flight 93 election, the idea that, that uh, all is doomed unless we rush the cockpit. The hysteria makes the hysterical person of world historic significance, that uh, this person alone has seen the doom. The fact is the world has never been safer. America has never been more prosperous. Conservatives have never been more entrenched in government with a, a fairly young and looks like durable Supreme Court and judicial majority throughout the Article Three courts of the Constitution. The idea that America is in constant crisis, that America is a fragile thing, like a, like a piece of, of uh, Limoges China that might shatter at any moment, is preposterous. But for those people who... Uh, who want politics to infuse their lives with meanings, a very unconservative idea, uh, it, it, it does just that. It makes them feel at the, at the center of an enormous world historic typhoon at all times. But against it's, that, it's against utterly silly. <laughs> Utterly silly, I love. But against that, academia has never been more preposterous. The culture has never been more degenerate and de or deranged. And if you look at what's happening to the, to, to the black family and to the working class family, you have things which have never been seen in, in history, really, in terms of just the breakdown uh, 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 of culture, the casualization of violence, the levels of illegitimacy. Surely there is something that is worth a sensible person panicking about. Absolutely. And, and above all, it is family disintegration. When Pat Moynihan in 1965 published his famous report, he said there's a crisis because 23.7% of African-American children are born out of wedlock. Today, it's 72%. 40% of all American first births are out of wedlock. A majority of mothers under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children. 
We know that because the family is the primary transmitter of social capital, this is a national disaster, and we don't know what caused it, and we have no clue how to resist it. But I must, I must there, throw in a, throw but, in a word, but, hang on, uh, as well, I must throw in a word for the more progressive view, which is that the shape of the family is simply changing. And yes, there are those who are living in deprivation because they do not have stable families. But the what you have described as being the essential building block is for many people uh, a system they don't want to live in. They don't all want to be, be married. They don't want to bring up their children in wedlock. And they may, to sort of cite a phrase, say there are many shapes and sizes of families that conservatives ignored or indeed repressed for many years. Well, that, that is the progressive view against which one says the following. As Pat Moynihan said at the time, the lesson of history is clear, he said, from the wild Irish slums of the East Coast in the 19th century to South Los Angeles today, when you have a large cohort of adolescent males who do not have fathers in the home, you have chaos. And chaos is what we've got on the south side of Chicago and elsewhere. But you just, you know, earlier you said that, that there was never a better time to be in America, and now you do seem to have gone towards the American carnage idea that uh, all is chaos because, as you see it, because of a breakdown no, in family we're a, structure. we're... we're no, we're a big country with big problems. That comes with the territory. The, the, life is messy. Democracies are messy. But social hypochondria is a constant American temptation, and it must be resisted. We have problems, but we are not a problem. The problem with the progressive view, which Anne has just expressed, I think, is that it's based on a fundamental hypocrisy. What you have in America is a bourgeois class that is preaching um, counter-bourgeois values, Hollywood values, but actually living a very bourgeois life. Um, so in fact, the upper classes in America, the middle classes, actually live quite stable lives. They have quite well-formed families. They invest a great deal in the development of their, of, of their children whilst, you know, saying that they like Quentin Tarantino films and the rest of it. Um, it's, it's, it's a problem of the poor, the dispossessed, and the former manual classes. So America is splitting. It's becoming a class society. And it's becoming a class society for many reasons, not least the, its capacity to invest in the cognitive development of its children. An upper class, which is educated, certified, and has stable families, and a lower class, which um, doesn't have those things. Um, and so I think the the progressive view is a way of not thinking about the real problems which confront America. Well, before Adrian and I right, have right, a family uh, argument. As, if I, let me just say, as, as the social scientist Charles Murray has said, the problem isn't that the bourgeois practice what they preach. They don't preach what they practice. They have, they have uh, preached a culture, cultural norms of vast tolerance and, and libertine living that they have no intention of, of having their children live by. I'm not hearing from you, George, where this leaves minorities. I'm not hearing where it leaves diversity. I'm not hearing where it would uh, would leave gay rights, LGBT rights, or indeed anything else that didn't particularly fit a, a, a pretty old traditional view of the, of the family. Am I wrong? You were quite wrong. Diversity is, an, is a, the oldest American tradition, from good, even back to when Benjamin Franklin thought Congress ought to publish laws in English and German both because there were so many Germans there. Diversity is always an American uh, fact, not just an aspiration, a fact. Uh, with regard to LGBT rights and all the rest, they are firmly established. Fifteen years ago, uh, George W. Bush uh, ran for re-election by getting on various state ballots anti-same-sex marriage referenda that would pull out conservatives who would 
uh, vote for him. Fifteen years later, you would not even dream of doing that. It's a settled question. Um, the, the amazing malleability of American opinion is uh, on display in exactly what you just cited. Assuming conservatives accepted it first time around. Yeah, of course they do. I am going to bring in uh, Adrian, who's looking like he wants to, to ask you something. Uh, George, I wanted to ask you about Brexit, um, partly for parochial reasons, but partly this is a very interesting thing for conservatives to think about, because on the one hand, it's an assertion of national sovereignty. On the other hand, it's extremely disruptive of the status quo. What should a conservative make of Brexit? <laughs> when uh, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, my friend Senator Marnahan said, all right, Will, what are you going to hate now that you can't hate Moscow? And I said, without missing a beat, Brussels, of course. Brussels is, is sort of the progressive vision of uh, experts applying social science to the rest of us. I fully understand uh, the impulse to Brexit. Uh, national, the national state has been a great friend of liberty. Uh, National sovereignty is not to be despised. Control of one's borders is an essential attribute of national sovereignty. Uh, so I fully also understand, however, the difficulties of disentangling oneself from the EU. You can make the case that the harder it is to get out, the more imperative it is to get out, that it, that it begins to look like a, a, a bear trap. Oh, absolutely. But one of the many things that it's done is completely divided the Conservative Party, both on factional lines, but also on philosophical lines, and prepared the, the grounds for the most hardline Marxist who's ever run the Labour Party to take over, take over the country. So it's a very difficult conservative issue, uh, I, I think, Brexit. It's, it certainly is. And in the last general election, 40% uh, of the vote went to a party headed by someone who regrets the way the Cold War ended. That's, that's a rather sobering fact, Absolutely. someone who finds in Hugo Chavez uh, a role model. But uh, the, I mean, your party system is in considerable flux right sure. now, but uh, parties come and parties go. The Republican Party arose in our country out of the debris of the Whigs. Nothing lasts once again. How does conservatism re-energize itself and renew itself to a group of younger people? And how does it counter AOC and the Green New Deal and the rest of it? Well, first, it makes an aesthetic churn. It has to change the way it talks because there is setting in, I think, Trump fatigue. Now, I know you can't unring a bell and that there, there are new ways of talking in American public life at the senior levels of politics that are going to be hard to reverse, but whoever comes along and tries to reverse them will, I am confident, be rewarded by the electorate. Second, people must understand that America has no choice but to embrace globalization and rapid, rapid economic growth because the American people have made enormous promises to themselves through their entitlement programs, enormous yeah, sure. calls on anticipated future productivity. And they'd better attend to the productivity. Why has the whole issue of the deficit disappeared from conservative discourse? Because the American political class from far left to far right is more united by a class interest than it is divided by ideology. And the class interest is that it's in everyone's interest as a politician to give the American people a dollar's worth of government and charge them 80 cents for it. The public loves it. The political class loves it. They fob off the difference on the unconsenting because unborn future taxpayers. It's decadent democracy, but it is lovely for those practicing it and benefiting from it. I think we, we, we love the, the, the 20 cents. We can all think we all have ideas where the, the 20 cents went. 
I should ask you, you both, coming back to our sort of philosophical roots of this conversation, but you, you both have, uh, I think you have, uh, you're divided by a, a common love of sports. How can a baseball nation and a cricket nation really mean the same thing by conservatism at all or play the same game? <laughs> well, I just read Lexington talking about American exceptionalism in baseball. Look, baseball is is very good f- sport for democracy because there's so much failure in it. No one gets everything they want. Every team goes to spring training knowing it's going to win 60 games, knowing it's going to lose 60 games. You play the whole season to sort out the middle 42. Cricket has a, has a, a similar rhythm and sense of unhurriedness about it. Very good for the democratic temper. Cricket or baseball as your conservatism, Adrian? Well, I think the interesting thing about the the various sports is that Britain is now in a great debate about whether it's a cricketing nation, i.e. a Brexiting nation, or a footballing nation, i.e. a global nation and particularly a European nation. Um, the cricketing nation is is where the Tory party would like to take us. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's where we will end up. George Will and Adrian Wooldridge, thank you very much for reading the runes of modern conservatism. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts on how conservatism is changing, or indeed on baseball versus cricket, we'd love to hear from you. Email us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to read our briefing on conservatism and the recent Lexington column that George Will mentioned there, do subscribe economist.com slash radio offer 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.